0: Welcome to another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories and Mysteries. This one titled The Heroes of Kamdesh is from our Heroes series and covers the bloody battle that took place at American Command Outpost Keating in Afghanistan near the mountain village of Kamdesh on October 3rd, 2009 and the events that led to the bloody confrontation when a force of 300 Taliban assaulted the American Combat Outpost. The attack was the bloodiest battle for U.S. forces since the Battle of Wanat in July 2008, which occurred only 20 miles away from Kamdesh. The attack on COP Keating resulted in eight Americans killed and 27 wounded, whilst the Taliban suffered an estimated 150 killed. This story is dedicated to all those who stand ready to sacrifice their lives for our freedoms. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. The Allies believed the key to denying the Taliban and other anti-coalition militia access to supply lines into Pakistan was to build provincial reconstruction team bases. The Allies hoped that by extending these bases into Nuristan, one of the most remote and isolated eastern provinces in Afghanistan, they could demonstrate to the entire Afghan population the government's credibility and power. These bases were a key element of the American counterinsurgency strategy. Colonel John Mick Nicholson, commander of the 3rd Infantry Bombat Team of the 10th Mountain Division, had observed that Kamdesh was located at a point where three of the valley systems from the Pakistan border in the north converged. Nicholson and officers of his command believed that much of the flow of weapons and troops from Pakistan could be stopped at Kamdesh. The camp was constructed by 3-71 Cavalry, 10th Mountain Division, reconnaissance, surveillance, and target acquisition in the summer of 2006 and was manned by their ABLE troop element till June 2007. The area had not been occupied by any conventional U.S. forces prior to Cavalry's takeover, although Special Operations Forces, including a Navy SEAL team that took major casualties when their helicopter was shot down by enemy fire in Operation Red Wings, operated in the area. The camp was originally constructed to be a PRT, or Provincial Reconstruction Team, called PRT Camdesh, but due to extremely high levels of fighting in the area, it remained a fire base instead of a PRT. In December 2006, it was renamed Camp Keating after the death of able troop Cavalry 10th Mountain Division's executive officer, Benjamin Keating, who died November 26, 2006, while conducting combat operations south of the camp. 371 cavalry conducted many successful combat missions in the area surrounding the camp and repelled various attacks on the base. The Kamdesh village and most of Nuristan is located in the Hindu Kush. This is a lofty mountain range characterized by steep slopes of enormous granite boulders separated by fast-moving rivers in deep, narrow valleys. The temperate climate of the area provides hot summers, a monsoon season in the summer and cold winters of ice and snow extending down into the valleys. The combination of volatile weather and rugged mountains make any kind of travel and life in general difficult and challenging. American military operations in Kamdesh were affected as soon as units began gathering for deployment in the area. Operation Deep Strike began on May 5, 2006. This was a redeployment from the Kaukay and Karangal valleys to Kamdesh. The pickup zone for Able Troop's 2nd Platoon was called PZ Reds, located on the side of an 8,000-foot mountain. It was nicknamed Heart Attack Ridge due to its steep slope and obstacles hazardous to low-flying aircraft. While attempting a pickup, a Chinook transport helicopter crashed in the darkness at 10.09 p.m. when the rear rotor hit a tree and the helicopter slid down the slope and over a cliff, exploding in flames and killing all the crew and passengers. There was an element of able Troop 371 Cavalry 2nd Platoon still left on the PZ after the crash that worked relentlessly to recover the bodies of their 10 comrades and destroy sensitive equipment left among the wreckage. This and many sections herein contain information found in Jake Tapper's new book, The Outpost, An Untold Story of American Valor. After marching into the proposed site for the Camdesh Provincial Outpost, Captain Michael and Cherokee Company's 2nd Platoon were confronted by a large boulder in the middle of the site that made use of a helicopter landing area in the PRT site impossible. The rock couldn't be blown apart without raining fragments into the town of Ermul across the Landay-Sin River. The landing zone was therefore placed on the other side of the river on a rocky peninsula, jutting into the river near Ermoul. This separation of the landing zone and the fact that PRT was surrounded by mountains on three sides make the site unappealing because of the difficulty of mounting an effective military defense for it. The outpost was literally in a valley bowl at the bottom of a steep mountain and extremely difficult to defend a bad choice on the part of those that chose the position. On August 8, 2006, 19 days after the first American landing, the PRT was attacked for the first time. Captain Frank Brooks, commanding at LZ Warhite, was dismayed to discover the PRT could not be quickly supported by LZ Warheight. From the PRT's position that resembled the bottom of a funnel, it couldn't be seen or supported with indirect fire due to the multi-level and complicated local terrain. The tall mountains made a joke of two-dimensional maps and rendered predetermined landmarks useless. Eventually, supporting aircraft scattered the attackers, but if the weather had been a problem, air support would not have provided the decisive results. From August 8th to November 25th of 2006, strenuous efforts were made to supply and expand the PRT by supply convoys using the Lande Sin Valley Road from Nere FOB. Afghan contractors were unable to keep the narrow mountain road in safe condition, and convoys were subject to constant ambush from the surrounding mountains that lined the entire valley, to Nere, another good reason to reconsider this outpost's defensive position. It was against regulations for officers to drive a convoy vehicle, but 1st Lieutenant Ben Keating took the wheel while returning an armored supply truck to the Narae FOB. He wanted to avoid risking the lives of his men while traveling on an unstable road subject to ambush with an overweight vehicle. During the highly risky convoy, the road collapsed under the weight of Keating's vehicle. He was thrown from the truck and then it rolled over him and sank into the Lande Sin River. His death had a traumatic effect on the morale of 371-Cav. The Allies stopped using the Camdesh Road as a result. Combined with difficult conditions for air supply and a continuing loss of support from the local population, supply to what was renamed Camp Keating on November 6, 2006 was steadily strangled. As it became obvious that COP Keating was too isolated, indefensible, and rapidly becoming impossible to supply, plans were made to close it, beginning in December 2008. Then, ten months went by. About 3 a.m. on October 3, 2009, insurgents ordered all Kamdesh villagers to leave the area. At dawn, 350 Taliban-led insurgents opened fire from all sides of the outpost with mortars and rocket-pelled grenades immediately putting the Americans' mortar pit out of action. The post on that morning was manned with fewer than 60 cavalrymen from Bravo Troop, 3rd Squadron, 61st Cavalry Regiment of the 4th Infantry Division. They would confront the enemy in a 12-hour close-contact battle that verged on hand-to-hand contact throughout. The outpost was breached in three places. Observation Post Frisch was attacked simultaneously, limiting available support from that position. Coalition forces responded with small arms fire, mortars, and by afternoon, helicopters, heavy artillery, and airstrikes, all inside the original security perimeter. The attackers overran Keating's perimeter defenses about 48 minutes into the battle. Breaches occurred at a latrine area close to the perimeter wire, also the main entrance where civilian Afghan security guards were overwhelmed, and from the eastern side where Afghan National Army soldiers were stationed. Despite the efforts of two Latvian military advisors who tried to convince the Afghan National Army forces not to flee, the Afghan defenders quickly broke and ran. U.S. soldiers reported that none of the Afghan soldiers held their ground. During and after the battle, some of the Afghan soldiers stole items, including digital cameras and protein drinks, belonging to American soldiers at the base. Once inside, the attackers set fire to the base, burning down most of the barracks. Within the first hour, the American defenders had collapsed to a tight internal perimeter centered on the two buildings that were not burning. Regrouping there, they pushed out teams to retake much of the outpost. There, they expanded the perimeter all the way back to the entry control point and to the buildings on the western edge of the outpost, which became their final fighting position. U.S. Air Support, directed by Sergeant Armando Avalos and Sergeant Jason Suter, including attack helicopters, A-10s, a B-1 bomber, and F-15 fighters, destroyed the local mosque where much of the insurgents' heaviest fire originated. Once OP Frisch soldiers gained control of their mortar pit, Sergeant Avalos began directing indirect support to help the defense of COP Keating. Two USAF F-15E fighter bombers circled overhead, led by Captain Mike Polidor, for almost eight hours, helping coordinate airstrikes by 19 other aircraft. The flight crews of three United States Army AH AH-64D Apaches were later decorated for actions during the battle. Captain Matthew Kaplan, CW-3 Ross Llewellyn, CW-3 Randy Huff, CW-2 Gary Wingert, CW-2 Chad Barwell, and CW-2 Chris Wright were awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for conducting close combat attacks on the Taliban during the battle. The battle for COP Keating resulted in the following honors for heroism. 27 Purple Hearts, 37 Army Commendation Medals with V-Devices for Valor, 3 Bronze Stars, 18 Bronze Stars with V-Devices, and 9 Silver Stars. Staff Sergeant Clinton, Clint, Romisha received the Medal of Honor for his actions that day, and another soldier, Sergeant Ty Carter, also received the Medal of Honor for his actions that day. According to the official Army narrative, on October 3rd at 5.53 a.m., an interpreter approached the troop command post and notified PFC Jordan Wong, who had pulled duty that night, that the Ermal police chief had personally relayed a warning that fifty to a hundred enemy fighters were presently staged in Ermal to attack C O P. Keating. Wong astutely logged the warning and notified the sergeant of the guard. At five fifty nine AM, six minutes after the warning had been received, the hills erupted. The enemy engaged C O P. Keating and O. P. Frisch with a coordinated complex attack, the magnitude and intensity of which had not been seen in the Kamdesh since coalition forces toppled the Taliban eight years earlier. At COP Keating, attackers fired from the creviced and overgrown high ground above all four sides of the combat outpost, initiating contact with rifles and Detch Yarnoff shepag large caliber, or DSHK, heavy machine guns. The ANA guard positions suffered immediate casualties, and collapsed. 10 to 15 Afghan soldiers fled through the wire. The remainder abandoned their positions to U.S. occupied buildings in the western portion of the combat outpost, leaving that northeast corner undefended. At the gun burst, B troop soldiers jumped to reinforce guard posts throughout the compound. Staff Sergeant Justin T. Galegos, Sergeant Bradley Larson, SPC Stephen L. Mace, Raced to fortified high mobility multi-purpose wheeled vehicles or Humvees at the southern side that served as a battalion position. The battalion position overlooked Ermal and a series of wide roughly graded switchbacks that climbed a steep ridgeline to the south, providing enemy forces a convenient infiltration route. Larson and Gallegos immediately engaged the enemy in the hills with the Humvee's 50 caliber machine gun and ground-mounted, belt-fed M240 machine guns, while Mace engaged the east with his M4 carbine. Across the compound, Tyke Carter had just emerged from his barracks and sprinted 100 meters across open ground under concentrated fire to join the others at the southern battle position. Upon arriving at the battle position, Carter gave two bags of M240 ammo to Gallegos and most of his M4 magazines to Mace. Above the din of the assault, Gallegos alerted Carter that they needed lubricant for the 50 caliber and additional ammunition. With complete dedication to the task and a great risk to his life, Carter ran the gauntlet a second time as enemy fire blossomed around him. Carter received two cans of lubricant from his platoon sergeant, Sergeant First Class Jonathan G. Hill and then ran to the ammunition supply point, or ASP, to collect the ammunition. The doors were locked. Without hesitation, Carter shot out the hasps, secured additional M240 belts, and weaved his way back to the Humvee battle position. The enemy attack was unrelenting, the cacophony of gunfire deafening, and the crew at the southern battle position quickly expended the additional M240 rounds. With suppression fire waning, the enemy fired a series of RPGs at the position, which had forced Gallegos, Mace, and Carter to take cover in the Humvee. A PKM bullet struck Larson in his Kevlar helmet, and he too ducked into the vehicle. At this point, Sergeant Vernon W. Martin joined the team as well. Moments later, three to four rocket-propelled grenades, or RPGs, struck the vehicle carriage. One rocket detonated on the turret and destroyed the 50 caliber, spraying the interior with shrapnel. Larson, Martin, and Carter were wounded. Approximately a half hour into the fight at 6.30 a.m., with both crew-served weapons disabled and the Humvee under heavy small arms fire from an estimated 20 to 30 fighters on the high ground to the south and another 30 to 40 fighters attacking from Ermal, Gallegos decided to break contact and move north, employing bounding overwatch to link up with the remaining soldiers of B Troop near the Tactical Operations Center, or TOC. Carter volunteered to stay with Larson and provide covering fire for the others as they attempted to bound back. Carter and Larson left the vehicle and provided suppressing fire with their M4 carbines while their three colleagues began displacing. As he maneuvered his team, Galegos was hit by machine gun fire from the direction of Ermal, killing him instantly. Martin was hit in the leg and scrambled beneath the nearby laundry tailor. RPG shrapnel wounded Mace, who managed to crawl to low ground 30 meters from the Humvee. Amidst a punishing hail of gunfire, Larson and Carter returned to the shredded Humvee. Lurching across the compound in a second Humvee, Sergeant Joshua M. Hart, SPC Christopher T. Gripton, and Private Edward W. Faulkner, Jr. reinforced the battle position. The new vehicle immediately encountered concentrated RPG fire from the southern high ground and a squad of enemy fighters that breached the combat outpost through the Entry Control Point, or ECP, Eight successive RPGs hit the Humvee, including a direct strike on the right passenger door that severely wounded Hart and sprayed Griffin and Faulkner with shrapnel. Hart evacuated the Humvee but was instantly cut down by PKM fire. Recognizing the imminent threat from the enemy squad inside the wire, Carter and Larson engaged and swiftly killed two enemy combatants and wounded one. Their accurate fire under intense pressure forced the enemy into a hasty retreat, and prevented them from overrunning several soldiers pinned down in the nearby mortar pit. Griffin and Faulkner darted north toward the command post across the same open ground Carter had already traversed three times. Faulkner made it safely, but Griffin was struck and killed instantly. Enemy fire set ablaze a number of buildings, and acrid black and gray plumes of smoke curled from the valley against the sky. With their M4 ammunition nearly exhausted, Carter again stepped from the Humvee to secure additional ammunition and check on whomever might be in the second Humvee. Crawling through the dust and gravel as intense volleys of enemy fire rained around him, Carter found the Humvee empty but grabbed an M249 light machine gun with a partial drum of ammunition and an M203 grenade launcher and then crawled back to Larson. Realizing the drum had only 50 rounds left, Carter suggested they de link the ammunition and employed an M4s so both men could continue to fight. Though each had less than a full magazine, Carter and Larson engaged the enemy with precision fire. Carter killed a two-man enemy RPG team and two additional fighters in the Umroll station. Wounded, outmanned, and outgunned, Carter and Larson still suppressed the enemy's assault teams. Their accurate fire under extreme duress with no margin for error, prevented the breach of COP Keating's vulnerable southern flank. Nearly two hours into the fight, at approximately 7.30 a.m., Carter observed from the passenger seat in the Humvee, Mace moving exposed toward low ground 30 meters away. Carter turned to Larson and said he wanted to attempt a rescue. Larson initially sought to deter Carter, stressing that, you're no good to Mace if you're dead. When Mace was struck with a new volley of gunfire and pleaded for help, Carter decided he had no choice but to try to reach his fellow soldier. Knowing that he would almost certainly be killed and with no regard for his personal safety, Carter jumped from the truck and sprinted forward to Mace. With small arms fire riddling the Humvee and the ground around him, Carter staunched Mace's bleeding and placed a tourniquet on his shattered leg. With any fire intensifying around him, Carter summoned the strength to lift Mace and carried him through the hail of bullets up to the rise and to the Humvee. Carter placed his fellow soldier in the back seat of the damaged carriage and returned to the fight. As their ammunition dwindled, Carter and Larson engaged the enemy with single, well-aimed shots. With inoperative radios and no contact with other b Troop soldiers, the pair grew concerned that the rest of COP Keating had been overrun. Recognizing that Mace needed immediate medical attention, and the vital need for reconnaissance, Carter, with Larson's concurrence, headed toward the TOC along the same path on which Gallegos had been felled. Moving under Larson's covering fire, Carter ran down the declining grade and maneuvered back toward the command post. En route, Carter came across Gallegos and checked his vital signs, grimly determining his fellow trooper had been killed. Carter found the sergeant's squad radio. Hearing traffic from others in B-Troop, he turned around and made his way back to Larson. They called the command post and let them know they were alive, but still pinned down. Fires now burned in most structures on the eastern side of the compound, and it became apparent that enemy forces had penetrated the wire in at least two places. In response, the rest of B Troop had consolidated in a tight perimeter around the command post and surviving barracks. While Carter and Larson had warded off a third breach, Staff Sergeant Clinton L. Romesha and Hill had led a counterattack to retake a meeting hall and close the ECP. Romisha and Hill killed several enemy fighters that had penetrated the combat outpost and opened an evacuation route that was still exposed to RPG and machine gun fire. When Carter and Larson called and confirmed they had been isolated and a litter-urgent casualty, Hill's element established a base of fire to cover their withdrawal. Carter climbed from the V and dug through the debris of the two shattered vehicles to uncover a litter. Carter and Larson then carried Mace across 100 meters of open ground, still being swept with sniper and machine gun fire. With Mace at the aid station, Carter reported to Hill and joined the fight with the platoon for the rest of the day. He served as a sniper, providing accurate cover fire for the teams of soldiers who were recovering the bodies of the fallen soldiers. Mace reached the aid station at approximately noon, nearly six hours after initial contact and approximately five hours after he was first wounded. Captain Chris Cordova administered extraordinary trauma care, including a series of intravenous drips and six blood transfusions taken from the veins of the soldiers in the troop, including his own. The heavy firefights in the enclosed valley prevented a medical evacuation helicopter from touching down in the narrow landing zone until the cover of darkness. When the helicopter was able to land, Mace was immediately flown to Forward Operating Base Bostic and then on to Begram, Bagram, and then on to Bagram Airfield. He succumbed to his wounds in the hospital, despite the heroic efforts of his fellow soldiers. About twelve hours after the initial attack, reinforcements finally arrived at the besieged combat outpost. A quick reaction force or QRF that had set down at Op Frisch had hiked down the interminable switchbacks, killing two retreating enemies en route and linked up with the defenders of C.O.P. Keating. The command outpost had held despite the unprecedented onslaught. In operations over the next several days, coalition forces killed one of the top regional subcommanders affiliated with the Taliban, turning a potential defeat into a decisive victory for coalition forces in the contested Camp However, the outcome might have been very different without the valor of Carter and Larson, who held the southern flank and prevented a platoon-sized enemy element from penetrating the wire, linking up with others, and attacking the TOC at close quarters. Carter's and Larson's heroism bought the necessary time for multiple air assets to come on station and blunt the massive enemy attack. Carter's remarkable acts of heroism and skill, which were vital to the defense of COP Cating, exemplify what it means to be an American hero. President John F. Kennedy said that a nation reveals itself not only by the men it produces, but by the men it honors. Carter's actions, which reflected great credit upon him, his unit, the United States Army, and the United States of America, made him a most deserving recipient of the Medal of Honor. President Barack Obama awarded Carter with the Medal of Honor in a White House ceremony on August 26, 2013. The following day, Carter was inducted into the Pentagon Hall of Heroes. And now to the actions of Staff Sergeant Romisha, who received the Medal of Honor, from President Barack Obama in an award ceremony at the White House on 11th of February, 2013. He is the fourth living Medal of Honor recipient for the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, following Salvatore Giunta, Leroy Petri, and Dakota Meyer, and the 11th overall for these wars. According to his Medal of Honor citation and interviews with his comrades, Romesha was usually in the middle of wherever the battle for COP Keating was thickest. With enemy fighters occupying the high ground on all four sides of the COP, he moved, uncovered, and, under intense enemy fire, conducted a reconnaissance of the battlefield and sought reinforcements from the barracks before returning to action with the support of an assistant gunner. He took out an enemy machine gun team, and, while engaging a second, the generator he was using for cover was struck by a rocket-propelled grenade, peppering him with shrapnel wounds. Undeterred, Romisha continued to fight, and upon the arrival of another soldier to aid him and the assistant gunner, he again rushed to the exposed avenue to assemble additional soldiers. Romisha mobilized a five-man team and returned to the fight equipped with a Russian sniper rifle left behind by one of the wounded Afghan National Army soldiers. With complete disregard for his own safety, Staff Sergeant Romisha continually exposed himself to heavy enemy fire, as he moved confidently about the battlefield, engaging and destroying multiple enemy targets, including three Taliban fighters who had breached the combat outpost perimeter. The citation continues. While orchestrating a successful plan to secure and reinforce key points of the battlefield, Staff Sergeant Romisha maintained radio communication with the Tactical Operations Center. As the enemy forces attacked with even greater ferocity... Unleashing a barrage of RPGs and recoilless rifle rounds, Staff Sergeant Romisha identified the point of attack and directed air support to destroy over 30 enemy fighters. After receiving reports that seriously injured soldiers were in a distant battle position, Staff Sergeant Romisha and his team provided covering fire to allow the injured soldiers to safely reach the aid station. Upon receipt of orders to proceed to the next objective, his team pushed forward 100 meters under overwhelming enemy fire to recover and prevent the enemy fighters from taking the bodies of the fallen comrades. Staff Sergeant Romesha's heroic actions throughout the day-long battle were critical in suppressing an enemy that had far greater numbers. Romesha's heroism didn't surprise his commanding officer, Stony Portis of Hanover, New Hampshire. Quote, his soldiers respected him, Because he never asked them to do anything he wouldn't or couldn't do himself, Portis says. In a firefight, he could orient fires and fire teams while simultaneously integrating indirect fires. But Clint was tough on his leaders, too. There were times when he would ask his platoon leader or me, Sir, would you mind explaining that to me? Have you thought about doing it this way instead? When he offered an alternative, his leaders listened, and to no one's surprise, his plans improved our missions. John Hill, a platoon sergeant and recipient of a Silver Star, said he'll never forget Romish's attitude that day. I was at my peak of frustration, fatigue, and overwhelmed with the situation at hand, Hill says. Needless to say, there was a lot going on at one time. In the Tactical Operations Center, it was loud with explosions just outside, yelling, and new reports of enemy locations. Out of the blue, Rowe said in a very stern and demanding voice, just as there was a moment of odd but haunting silence, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to take this and COP back. When he said that and the way he said it, it was like his war cry, trying to rally the men for that last bit of guts, honor, and never quit attitude. And take it back, they did. Twelve hours after the battle started, the quick reaction force that had landed three kilometers away made it to the COP and relieved the besieged troops. After the battle, COP Keating was abandoned and ultimately destroyed by U.S. aircraft, called in to ensure that nothing was left that could be used by the insurgents. As the last helicopters full of troops loaded up to leave the area, Romisha was the final man on the bird. It was bittersweet leaving COP Keating, Romisha says. Units before us suffered there, and we suffered there, and to give up that terrain was a little heartbreaking. But tactical decisions above us are made, and we've got our job to do. There are dozens of stories of heroism during the battle, for C.O.P. Keating, also called the Battle of Kamdesh, but there are many who believe that our soldiers were placed in harm's way due to bad decisions. In an AP article, the father of Stephen Mace, who was killed during the attack, says U.S. military commanders should have known that the troops there were sitting ducks. Larry Mace's soldier son was buried at Arlington National Cemetery with full military honors, one of eight U.S. troops killed in Camdesh. The attack at Kamdesh along with a similarly costly battle a year earlier in nearby Wanat, emerged as serious challenges to U.S. military strategies and resulted in the disciplining of a number of Army commanders whose decisions to choose hard-to-defend village outposts and failure to provide them with enough men and materials and the failure to close COP Keating immediately after the decision to abandon it, which came months earlier, all pointed to a need to prepare and equip strategies that put our soldiers first. American commanders didn't reinforce Keating or pulled the troops that were there out in time, Larry May said. More than a year before the firefight at Camdesh, nine U.S. soldiers were killed and 27 more were wounded when their base at went A village about 30 miles from Camdesh was nearly overrun by insurgents. The only difference between the two battles are the dates and the names of the soldiers killed, Larry May said. They haven't changed their game plan. They're fighting a war with too few people. Following the October 3rd battle that killed Stephen Mace, U.S. forces left Keating in another outpost at Kamdesh. The withdrawal had been planned long before the attack had occurred, according to NATO-led coalition. A spokesman said the shift was part of a new strategy outlined months ago by the top U.S. commander in Afghanistan, General Stanley McChrystal, to shut down difficult-to-defend outposts and redirect forces toward larger population areas to protect more civilians. Even as his son was being remembered as a hero, Larry Mace remains angered by the circumstances surrounding his son's death. Stephen was home in August on two weeks' leave, sitting in the living room of their home in Winchester, Virginia. Mace said Stephen told him the Taliban were massing in Kamdesh. Yet, strict rules of engagement kept the soldiers from taking aggressive action to prevent an attack, Larry Mace said. Mace recalled that Stephen gave his dog tags to his brother Brad before returning. I think he knew he wasn't coming back, Larry Mace said. We offer this episode in honor of all the men and women who serve in our armed forces, and especially to those who never made it back. The enemy death toll at the Battle of Camdesh was estimated at between 150 and 200. Eight U.S. soldiers paid the ultimate price that day. Justin T. Gallegos of Tucson, Arizona. Christopher Gripton of Kinchelow, Michigan. Kevin C. Thompson of Reno, Nevada. Michael P. Scusa of Villas, New Jersey. Vernon W. Martin of Savannah, Georgia. Stephen L. Mace of Lovettsville, Virginia, Joshua J. Kirk of South Portland, Maine, and Joshua M. Hart of Applegate, California. They gave their lives thousands of miles away at a remote mountain outpost so we could live in freedom here. Never forget. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, this is your host, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.